Petersfield's Shine Radio. You are listening to Talking Books with Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, I'm Susie Wilde and you're listening to Talking Books. Now I'm going to start with an immediate confession that Tim and I are sitting in One Tree Books the day after I interviewed our this month's guest because, well, Tim, why don't you tell the listeners why? Because I spent most of yesterday sitting on the M4... <laughs> <laughs> we got stuck in a there's a so there was a the big big fire and they closed the motorway both ways and I got stuck the wrong side of it so I sat there in the sunshine completely still for four hours reading my book so it wasn't the end of the world but what anyway. book was it are you going to talk about uh, it later or no I'm not it was it was <laughs> going to talk about it the time after when it's actually published it's called oh. uh twitch oh. by mg leonard it's a it's a children's book and uh very enjoyable it was too tim what are you currently reading well, I'm reading as ever a few, a few books at the, at the moment. I've just finished Snow Country by Sebastian Folks. Uh, it's set partly in Vienna and partly in a snowbound sanatorium in the, the Schloss Seblik, Seblik a place of healing for troubled minds. Uh, set in early 20th century, um, between 1914 and 19, 1933, it sort of captures the spirit of those difficult times. It's it's about psychoanalysis. Um, Poverty, political radicalism, the trauma of war, and the, the coming of the modern age. So it's it's you know it doesn't hold it doesn't hold back on its themes. Um, but I think with Sebastian folks, I think uh, he writes some brilliant stuff and he writes some less good stuff. And and there's always a little bit of both in all of his novels. Um, those of you probably remember Birdsong, which which um, came out oh goodness nearly 30 years ago now, I think. It was a um, storm, wasn't which it, Which was really? an extraordinarily successful book. And there was a brilliant piece of writing about the, about the engineers in the First World War working and the mining underneath the, the enemy lines. Uh, incredibly atmospheric. But there was also some, I thought, quite dull bits uh, mm. as well, set in, set in rural too. France at the beginning. So, so I think he, he sometimes gets... He does, he does brilliant set pieces and he does some really interesting stuff, and, but it's a bit uneven at times. Yeah, yeah. So that's one... I read a book called Yours Cheerfully by A.J. Pierce, who's a Hampshire writer. It's a sequel to Dear Mrs. Bird. Um, it's about a young woman working for a, a women's weekly magazine during World War II. Uh, it's full of humour and charm and quite a lot of pathos as well. Um, with serious issues thrown in. This one, which is a sequel to Dear Mrs. Bird, deals with the, the women working in the munitions factories and the tricky lives that they that they endured. So it, it's it's a, a good book, I think, and um, definitely definitely worth reading. Is AJ female? She is, yes. And there's a reason why I'm going to ask. I don't, I don't to talk think about she, this. I don't think she. I don't. I think that's what she's known as, AJ. Um, oh, okay. I don't okay. think she's even called Angela you know, whatever. or Andrea yeah. or whatever. The third book I was going to mention uh, is a book called Fresh Water for Flowers, and it's by Valerie Perrin. Uh, very Perrin, she's French, uh, oh. and it is it is it's a translation which I was reading for a, for a book club I belong to, and it is very French, um, so much <laughs> so that 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 it, it's really quite hard to read. Without that, oh. it's poorly translated, I think actually, because oh. it's translated directly from the French. And sometimes you're reading it, you think, I don't even know what that means. I don't know that doesn't even make sense. Um, and so, but it's so interesting because it's interesting how how 
different French culture is from ours and how differently French writers write. Um, and I hadn't quite realised, because often like, you read good translations of French books and you don't, you, it's like you're reading an English book. But this wasn't that at all. And in fact, I've, it's, quite, it's quite repetitive. And I, I've actually, I'm stalled about halfway through it. I mean, it's about, it's partly, it's about a cemetery keeper and her, she's, she looks like she's had a very troubled past. And um, of course, we hear a lot about the stories about, of the dead and the recently, recently uh, and the recently bereaved. Um, so it's, it's a mix between her life and, and the, the lives of, of people who, who get buried in her cemetery. Um, and she has quite a complex backstory, which slowly is revealed through the book. Not an easy backstory, quite a tough one. Um, but I, I must say, it, it's 500 pages or something, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm marooned after about 200 pages. I'm not sure I'm going to finish this book. Okay. Uh, so I, it's not what I'm really heartily recommending, I have to say. I think it's good that the Society of Authors have got a translation prize because, I mean, it is key. Yeah, and, and some... But, you know, I suppose it's, it's just really interesting reading a, a book that's not well translated because you get a real feel for the, for the French. Anyway, so that, that's what I've been reading. How about you? What have yeah, you been up to? fantastic. Well, thanks to you, I've been reading a proof copy of Meg Rossoff's The Great Godden, which I'd heard wonderful things about. Um... I have to say, because I'm the age I am, it, it, it's, I suppose, right, start again. I suppose it's a Bildungsroman, if you like. Um, What's the Bildungsroman? I'm glad you asked me. Um, it's, of course, a German term for a book where the protagonist grows up, literally, um, from childhood, but also there's often... A special knowledge. So my book, for instance, was described as that. That's why I scurried off to find out what it was. Was it, did it mean pile of rubbish? But it actually means <laughs> that the um, protagonist grows up and learns some special thing. And I suppose in this case, she grows up in order, I mean, this isn't a spoiler, it's on the blurb, to, to find out about love and have her heart broken. Really, so I mean, you could call it a coming of age novel. Would, you, a, would, that, would that be the English translation? Kind or? of, except she is of age. And one of the problems I had with it, it was looking back. So it was now she has come of age, and she's looking back at the point in her life where she had this first love. I was going to say love affair, but it really wasn't. It was a passion, a passionate crush on somebody. I think yeah. is better. Well, it's a, it is a book for teens, isn't it? So, so you're an adult book, so yes. maybe that's why you didn't, you didn't, you didn't appreciate as much as as you as. Um... Maybe, except I'd argue that it, you'd actually get more out of it as an adult than you would as a teen. But having read, we'll be French again. Bonjour tristesse, and other books that, like that, Françoise Sagan, which I think is absolutely masterful at the same thing and the point is that was written as though it was in the narrative present whereas this you know is in the past and it just put that little bit of distance um and i have a bit of trouble with that okay so that's a personal thing but i think other it's praise to the skies i love her as an author i think it held lots of things but for me it wasn't wonderful right two things you've mentioned your book club I'm reading I Feel Bad About My Neck by Nora Ephron, which was my choice. Um, good. So yeah. one of the things I would say, the theme of that and the good thing about book clubs is it exactly gets you out of your regular reading. And one of the things that Katie and I talked about, because both of us suffer from this, is people saying, oh, it's not my cup of tea. I never read books like dot, dot, dot. 
And I was so glad that I read hers. I know people have said to me, I didn't really want to read your book, but it was nothing like I supposed it was going to be, and I loved it. And I think, do you know what? We should all read out of our genre all the time. Good idea. Which Good you idea. encouraged me to do. So what did, you, what did you think about the, about the book? What was your, what was your uh, take, take, my take Nora message Ephron, from it? Yeah. My Nora Ephron is, in fact, I'm going to do a bit of a con here because my backlisted choice is um, Fire and Hemlock by Diana Wynne-Jones which I will talk about at length because I think it's masterful and wonderful. Um, but I'm going to actually do the reading from I Feel Bad in my, my Neck. So for those of you who don't know, Nora Ephron wrote When Harry Met Sally, um, Sleepless in Seattle. She was one of the major, major rom-com screenwriters, um, sadly dead now. But when I went back to the book, I realised that she wrote it at the age I am now. Um, and it was much more relevant to me. I mean, a great deal of it is to do with maintenance, how you're forever doing the grouting and bits of plaster of your own body. And at the time, I thought, I have no idea what you're talking about, but now I do. Um, so <laughs> if anyone has ever um, sort of, oh, I do, I look just like my mother. If any one of you out there stand in front of the mirror in the morning and habitually sort of pull your flesh of your face up behind your ears... Um, You'll know exactly what I'm on about. And the end of it is full of one-liners, so I'm going to do those. I think I'm going to mention... I did mention about Nora Ephron that um, Dolly Arterton said something, and you're going to talk about Dolly Arterton under what's coming up, aren't you? Yes. So Dolly said, I buy this book for people so often that I've been known to give girlfriends two copies, one birthday after another. Right, well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> right. Made by the people of Petersfield. This is Shine Radio. Well, now it's time for our interview. And we're really delighted to be joined this month by Katie Marsh, whose latest book, Unbreak Your Heart, was Tim's top-selling book last month. Yes! How good is that? <laughs> I mean, brilliant. She's a Petersfield author, I'm sure loads of you already know that, whose books sell all over the world. After a 10-year career in the NHS, she left to take up writing full-time, and I can see why now. First of all, um, I've got to say how much I really, really enjoyed the book. And, you know, that's not always a given. (laughs) But I also have to say that when Tim said we were doing this, I looked, I said, no, no, I never read stuff like that, which is inexcusable, which didn't stop me from doing it. But part of the reason why I said it is because I get this all the time about my books as well. And it kind of irritates me. And here's a message to everybody out there. Never get stuck in a genre. Um, Apart from anything else, I suppose my go-to is crime and thrillers, which the listeners all know. That's my thing. Mm -hmm. So when I'm highly stressed, that's where I go. But gosh, your book came like manna from heaven. I found it just the most, I don't know, cathartic, involved story but in a great way. Um, Now, the reason why I'm saying it's not normally my cup of tea, because Tim said, it's a romance, Mm -hmm. it's wonderful. I read the blurb, it tugs your heartstrings, it's got a child in it. I was going, I don't need that. (laughs) You know, why do I need the trauma? I'm not, if there's a dog in it, I'm definitely not reading it. If the dog dies, forget (laughs) it, you know. But actually, Katie, I've got to say, 
this is the only book I've read that has managed to have a character, Simon, who isn't a villain and yet is so interesting. Mm. You totally gun for him and he's a really nice guy. How did you do it? Do you know what? It was quite tricky. He had quite a few rewrites. But essentially, I wanted to take... I wanted to write from a male perspective. I thought it would be really interesting. I thought it would be out of my comfort zone, which it was. Um, And I wanted a man who had got completely lost. I was... You talk about the romantic genre. There's often a woman who's a bit of a mess at the beginning. And she's overweight. And you have the cliché journey from that to taking off the glasses and losing a pound or two and getting your man. And I thought it'd be fascinating to write about a man who, for very good reasons, the best of reasons, wanting to look after his son, has got totally lost himself. And I thought, how fascinating to put him with a woman who's had a pretty tricky past as well, with a but son... But completely differently. Completely differently. And then with a son who is determined to take that dad and find him someone to love. So I thought it'd be a really interesting mix. And he was fun to write, Simon. Once I started writing him, because actually he wasn't narrating in the first draft of the book. Someone else was. Um, as soon as I started writing him, I just, I, he flew. So did you have a single point of view protagonist at the beginning? Uh, so if you, I hope you'll all read it. Mm. So the narrative is split mm-hmm. between the two main characters yes so did you just have one at the beginning or? i didn't i had two characters who are no longer in the book oh gosh i know Katie, that's incredibly <laughs> drastic it was pretty drastic was that an editing choice or your own choice well i've got a very very good editor who was who worked so hard on this book the first draft wasn't a winner let's put it like that i got my edit notes february 2020 just before lockdown oh. And it became pretty obvious from that that I had the wrong narrator too. And so I switched the whole thing round and made it Simon. It was a middle-aged woman, so it was quite a dramatic shift. Wow. Um, and I hacked out those two characters, moved Beth next door to Simon, and that wasn't originally the case either, and rewrote the whole thing in two hours a day in lockdown with small children. So it was. Uh, it was this a... is the sound of my jaw <laughs> dropping and bouncing off the floor. Yeah, it was. It was quite difficult to summon a romantic atmosphere when I literally couldn't have a wee on my own for four months. Um, I have a two. Who's two at that point? Um, but actually, it became a bit of a, a solace, an escape. Me in my room with my romantic Lake District setting, um, and just escaping from you know the fear and the everything that was going on. We've all been through it. it was Did horrendous. you have that brain fog? Because I did, I I couldn't write through the first Mm. lockdown. I didn't get it then, I got it later. I kind of still got it a little bit now, to be honest. But um, at that point, I think the book probably kept me going through number one, lockdown. So I finished it at the end of the lockdown. And then it was edit, you know, copy edits and stuff like that in the second lockdown, I think. Okay. And then it came out in May. Well, you've referenced Jake, who's the little Mm. boy in it. And it's... The bit that really hooked me and I found fascinating was the particular medical condition he has. So mm-hmm. could you tell listeners about it? And and obviously I suppose your NHS thing is how yeah. you know. So can you say a bit about it? Yeah, it's hyperplastic left heart syndrome, which is shortened to HLHS. And it means your blood, your heart isn't fully formed. So you're, it can't pump blood effectively around your body. So you're constantly short of air, In oxygen, the womb, or- energy... 
Yeah, as, it starts, as it's, it develops in a fetus and then is operated on within days of the baby's birth. Oh. So this little boy at six days old has an operation, then he has another one when he's kind of a bit older, and then he has this third one that, that the book is running towards, which can't ever make him better. It's an incurable condition, but it can give him a much more longevity of life. Um, now, there's a. am not going to spoil the plot, but... Jake believes that he's not going to make it through this operation, which is why he is so dead set on finding his dad someone to love. Um, Jake's mum left when he was very little. She couldn't handle the situation at all. She got depressed. She ran away, essentially. Um, So it is just them on their own. And he tries, as only a seven-year-old can, to make his dad fall in love. He, He talks to inappropriately young girls in lifts and says his dad's great. And he tries to give his dad a makeover that basically nearly ends in, in mortal injury. <laughs> so ends in um, blood. <laughs> in a lot of blood everywhere. Um, you know, he really goes... He, he signs his dad up to a dating app that is entirely the wrong kind of dating app. And, you know, Simon doesn't want any of it. Simon just wants to get bread on the table, to get Jake through his operation, to look after his boy. Um, so it's a, it's a good... I found it a nice comic element to the book, Jake. I was going to say, to, to be able to effortlessly... There, I didn't ever feel that the comedy was shoehorned in. Mm. And it was that, you know, one minute you're laughing, the next you're crying. It's, yeah. you know, I think that works really well. And certainly, um, it was the opposite of... Uh, I think there's nothing wrong with the sentimental. Mm. So I don't know, It's it's if it gets a bit mawkish. Mm. I think sometimes American films in particular really crank it up with music and so on and I find I sort of resist the more it gets like that but because you loosened the reader up with so much (laughs) comedy it's just so funny um and I think yeah I can't imagine who wouldn't love it actually what was the inspiration for it Uh, it was uh it was my daughter so my daughter when when in my womb was diagnosed with cleft lip and palate on one side um, and it was a huge shock and we knew she'd be in for surgery very quickly when she was born. There was an awful lot of stress around the whole experience and obviously you're, you're conscious as a mum from that point on that your baby is, is uh, going to have a tougher life than you might want off, straight off the bat and that's hard. So um, as I was carrying, she was 16 weeks old when she had her first operation. Oh. She was tiny and I had to carry we had to carry her down to her to the anesthetic room um in and uh and I being a writer nothing is ever lost is it so I thought of the story then I thought well what you know you could write about this in some way and I you know then it bubbled away for many years and then finally now is the time to write it I think the timing was good in that even though there was lockdown, I think it's a really life-affirming book and it's full of Evie's light and her hope. But Evie, nothing is going to stop that girl. She is so strong and so determined. And uh, she's incredibly... She finds the joy in every little bit of life, I think, because she still has a lot of surgery. She has a lot of medical input and she will for a long time. But therefore, she makes the most of everything else. And she's incredibly joyful. Slightly follow-up to the Simon thing. Mm -hmm. In a way, there isn't a villain in the book. There's nobody that you... That depends who you talk to. Oh, okay. Strong views about one character in particular coming His across His dad? Mm-mm. Oh. Tamsin. Right, so for those who don't know, <laughs> do you want to tell us about Tamsin? Tamsin is Jake's mum. 
And uh, as previously stated, she left because she got depressed and just it, she was only 19 when she had Jake. He had a huge clinical condition. It's a massive thing to deal with. Um, and so it overcame her, really, and she ran away and then it became easier to stay away. Um, but she reappears. Um, that's not a plot spoiler. She reappears and, yes, Je- Simon has been holding a candle for her ever since she went. So this somewhat upsets Jake's plans, but he uh, he pivots not necessarily in a particularly useful Say way. <laughs> but yeah. I do, honestly, I still, I rest my case. I still personally mm. don't find that there was a villain in there. I That's did find, I hated the fact she reappeared. Did you? Yes. Yeah. As a, as That's a, good though. As I'm in, in that world, <laughs> you know, I would, I would be letting her tyres down or something. Yeah. Um, you see how involved I get. Um, but she's a completely rounded character. Again, mm. uh, with her own mini journey. So yeah. I love that. Even in the, you know, we would say, I would say a secondary character, not a minor yeah. character, actually. Yeah. Um, and even, even, um, I can't remember her name, but the lady who lets out her house Jean. to bed. I love Jean. Yeah, Jean's yeah. brilliant. I might write a separate book about Jean. Jean has to have her own She's book. She's amazing. She probably should go on a dating app. She should. She probably is on one. She probably Several. is on one, yeah. No. She'll be on whatever it would be. Um, but so I said Simon's dad, because mm. for a long while he's this dour, mm. farming, you know. Well, actually, my family do farm up there, so I have cousins who farm up there, so... Uh, they're not. He's not based on them, but his his style of living is quite similar. And then the cadence, because I was going to say what really shines in this book for me is the dialogue, that each character is completely identifiable mm-hmm. um, from the way they speak. Yeah, I've always found dialogue easier than uh, prose. Um, I do far too much dialogue, in fact. I always get edited down on it. Oh, interesting. Um, I tend to do exposition that way, which actually I don't think really works. It's better in the monologue. But um, So, yeah, I, I love writing dialogue. It's my natural happy place. Have you done screenplay? No, I'm tempted though. I'm now thinking about it. Yeah. I think it'd be fun. Yeah, I think it sounds yeah. like you'd be really good at it. So the other thing I always get asked, mm-hmm. so I've referenced the fact that people also say, oh, I don't read books like yours about yeah. mine because I just yeah. sort of trail them as Viking thrillers. But in fact, right at the start is um, her mother dying and I completely used my mother dying for that bit so I completely get that Mm. and I think all books it doesn't matter what genre you say they are one says they are that all books actually if they're worth anything have Mm. all of life um, of any era because I don't think the human brain alters very much at all I don't either I don't either I like writing about really big emotional hard-hitting stuff but I also like writing about the messy glory of just life the, the giggles and the yeah. silly moments in the bath or whatever you know I just think it's much more you un- I, I just those are the things I like writing about messy family love universal universal life has light and dark all those things that are epic cliches but they are just love writing about those emotional highs and lows I tend to have a small cast but I have big emotions behind my books that's very good yeah. very good I shall review it with that. I shall pinch that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, now, the thing I, I always get asked is, mm. what's my writing process? And I've never asked a single other author that when I've done the interviews here. So I've been jabbed to, to ask Have you? the next one. And sadly, that's you. Um, so Katie's making a face here. Um, do you have a writing pro- I've heard that you lock yourself away in lockdown. Yes. What do you do? Are you a cafe or a cave writer? 
cafe. I'm mix actually. I'm a real mix. So initially, I'm absolutely cafe. I genuinely write people into the back of my scenes who I see in around and about, um, or I try and sit there and work out what mannerism is defining that person walking through the door and how I could get it on the page. Um, so I'm very much like that. Now I used to plot from emotional point to emotional point going forward. So I'd always have a what if premise, and then I'd know where I was going to end, but I really wouldn't know how I was going to get between the two currently experimenting with writing plotting backwards okay so from the end back to the beginning how am I going to get there I think I'm wondering if it might just um I don't know reinvigorate me a bit I think after five books which is where I now am got two more on this contract I just thought I'd experiment a little bit yeah that's interesting certainly when I've done a first draft Mm. once I've got my ending I always have to go back yeah and not just make little changes, but it just alters the whole thing. So yeah. that could be a really interesting way of doing it. The cave stage is definitely edit stage. So I actually yeah. quite like edits. My, not my structural edit this time. That was fairly massive. But um, I love the next stage where you're really refining the language and the dialogue and making it all move as fast as you can and keeping the pace going. I love that. Yeah, I do too. That's the fun bit. Because the pressure's yeah. off, really. Yeah. It's not a book. Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> there. Got, got something to hand in. Yes, it's um, like homework. It is, just yeah. like that. Right back at the NHS, what mm. inspired you to write? Have you always written or, you know, what happened there? 100% bookish forever, as far as I can remember. Wrote terrible stories about myself when I was, you know, growing up about Katie. Got stung by a bee on a day when, coincidentally, I'd been stung by a bee. Fascinating plot lines like that. Um, and then I didn't write for ages. I went to Cambridge, studied English, got intimidated at the thought of writing, didn't write. Uh, went into the NHS for 10 years. Love the NHS. Who doesn't? Uh, really enjoyed it, but it wasn't quite doing it for me. Then uh, just started writing a book, two and a half books later. Didn't quite get there, but got a bit of the way. Got agent interest, didn't. Started, stopped. And then had the idea for my first book. And I knew that one was a goer. But I was working full time. And so that took me about five years. And then once I finally got to the end of that, I got an agent very quickly, got a book deal very quickly. That's so really good. That's so quite... unusual. <laughs> well, I remember the 10 years of the effort before that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I just, it's, it's a vocational thing, isn't it? It's not really a choice. It's a totally illogical job. Uh, utterly. Um, absolutely nuts job. Um, but it just always called to me. I love stories. Even in the NHS, any hospital you're in at any point, there's a million stories moving around. Yeah. Staff, patients, the man pushing the trolleys. It's just, they're everywhere. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I went to UCL to do English and Mm. that also terrified me. It, You know, how could you ever compete? Well, quite. With Middlemarch. Yeah. And I've dragged that in, listeners, because (laughs) Tim hasn't read it. No. Tim. You see? Tim. Katie's equally shocked. We've got to get him to read it. <laughs> so, Katie, now we've come to the bit that I love the best. Okay. Um, if you were on your desert island with one book only, what would it be? Oh, man, this one's evil. I did thank you for prepping me for this. This would have been otherwise the longest interview in the history of interviews. <laughs> I would take Wonder by RJ Palacio. I don't I know adore. it. It's a YA book about a little boy called Augie Pullman, who looks very different to the rest of the world. It's about kindness, it's about community, it's uplifting, it's done from multiple children's points of view, which uh, I think is really clever. There's no grown-up point of view in it. The parents appear and disappear. 
But it's essentially about a boy who stands out a mile every second of every day, but he has this amazing effect on people around him and he makes them able to be who they really are. Oh, simply I've got to read it's that. It's wonderful, and you'll weep buckets at the end. Excellent. Yeah. Right, good. My sort of weeping. It would That's remind good. me of the world being kind when I was stuck on oh, a desert yeah, and miserably trying to make a shelter out of like a leaf and a stick. Yeah, well, maybe you could make an ant more itself. I or don't something think I'm going to be very good on desert island. <laughs> Seriously. You and me both. I'm not practical. <laughs> but it's good because my backlisted choice happens uh-huh. to be Diana Wynne-Jones this <gasps> month. I loved her when I was growing it's, up. It's um, Fire and Hemlock. Oh, um, so yeah, that's mm. good. It all fits in. Good, Katie. Thank you so much for, for coming in, um, and I hope we meet again at your next book launch. Absolutely. Petersfield's Shine Radio. So you'll now all have enjoyed the interview, and Tim, of course, hasn't yet had the chance to hear it. So normally he'd be discussing it with me, but we'll do that later. Maybe even next month when we next in tim what's coming up well i've picked out three books that are coming in sort of published about now or or this month or later um the first one is called woodston portrait of a farm by john lewis stemple i love the cover it is it's it's a beautiful book actually and what he what he's done he's a he's a nature writer who who takes uh place and really describes it, it beautifully. So he's done this, this this farm, which is which is where he grew up. It's a sort of family family farm on the Herefordshire, Worcestershire, uh, Welsh borders. It's a kind of history book, as well as being a book about a place. So what he does is he imagines uh, Saxon England, uh, the, what, what the Celts were doing, what 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 different things happened in agriculture over the years. So it's a sort of it's a sort of biography of a farm, but it's kind of an imagined biography of a farm, um, which it's a strange sort of hybrid book, really. But I think it, so. It's, it's though the farm's a character, almost. Well, it's or... yeah, it's con- it's kind of looking at the farm throughout the ages. But he has to have to obviously have to imagine what what yes. happened two thousand years ago. Uh, but it's uh, so that's a, it's an interesting concept, and I'm looking forward to reading it. I haven't mm. read it yet, um, but I think he's he's a terrific writer. I've read a couple of his books before. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that that's one. That's the first on my list. Um, the second one is the biography of a much-loved comic, Victoria Wood. Um, now, she's the favourite. She's the comedian's comedian, if you like. She's everyone around, always raves about her and rates her so highly. Uh, it's written by a guy called Jasper Rees, who knew her, um, who's also a journalist and he's written several other books. He's written this book and, and it's been praised to the skies by, by all her friends, basically, who say he's really... Got her. Got her. Um, and did she authorise it? She did. Or, okay. she, she, she got him... She knew that he was going to write it before she died. And his, her estate asked him to fit, actually finish it off. And it's a big book. You know, it goes around to 500 pages. Um, but it's probably not the book you... you not a book you read from, from beginning to end. You have... You know, you read old chapters here and there and see different parts. Of, so is it chronological? It is chronological. Okay. okay. Those who really love her, I think, will love the book. I met her a couple of times. Did probably you? the same time as you knew Jasper. And particularly with her then-husband, the great Sorprendo. Um, right. And they would do things together. And I remember saying, oh, God, she really hates me. Oh, dear. And uh, no, <laughs> she didn't. And close friends said she is so painfully shy. Right. And it's a classic case of on stage, this wonderful persona, and off stage, the shyness made her quite prickly and, you know. But yeah. She, but she, we got to know each other a bit better and she was fine. So I would really look forward to reading yeah, that. Absolutely. Well, good. 
And the last one, as you as you uh, trailed, is um, Dolly Alderton's book is just out in paperback called Ghosts. Um, it's a story of a woman in her early 30s looking to settle down with Mr. Wright um, and, and the difficulty she has finding Mr. Wright. Uh, uh, fantastic insights, really, into, into how difficult uh, you know, it proves to be. Um, it's also about families, both, both new and old. I mean, it's, it's a novel, so it, although she writes about her life in the newspapers and she's a regular columnist in the Sunday Times... Um, it's very sharply observed fiction, and um, it's not always doesn't always make com- for comfortable reading. But I think she really nails some. In stuff. what way? In how way uncomfortable reading? Well, in that it's quite honest. Uh, the, the character that we that she writes about is not the it's not the easiest, and not the and not the, um, she clearly has has. It's has like issues. flea bags sort of issue. Well, I think yeah, I'd say that's that's a close relative. Okay. Um, and it's, but it's definitely, it's definitely worth a read. She writes really well. I think it's very easy to read in the sense that that it's very fluently written. And um, and I know you have an issue with the, the successful journalists who go and knock out a novel and say, ah, oh, look at me, I can do, I can do everything. But actually, she can. She's very talented, I think. Yeah. So, uh, no, I do like her writing. It's less so the journalists actually, because they are writers. They're, they're it's, craftspeople. You know, yes. people that yeah. you know, are sportsmen and so on. You know. <laughs> And don't credit the ghostwriters. That yeah, no, she's, is a particular she's issue. She's clearly she can write. That's, she that's totally can write. I love yeah. her her pieces that I read. Is it ghosts in the sense of being ghosted on social media, or is it literally? Yes, okay. it is. It's okay. not a ghost story. I'm sorry, right. Susie. I know oh, you have a shucks. passion for ghost stories. It's nothing to do with ghouls that uh, <laughs> make noises in the night. It's it's, it's afraid it's about being ghosted. Okay. On on Excellent. by by uh, by people on, on social media. I love media. it. That was brilliant. So now it's my backlisted book with extract. So my choice this month is Fire and Hemlock by Diana Wynne-Jones. Have you read it, Tim? I haven't, I'm afraid. I have heard a lot about her and one of these days I shall get stuck in and read it. But yeah, I honestly, it, it, I mean, it is, it's a classic case again. Of, I, over the years, it was published in 1986, and over the years, uh, the blurb has totally put me off because it sounds like just a young adult love story with a bit of fantasy thrown in. Oh, I'm all for and those. I, I know, those. I know, I know. <laughs> well, I do as well, but there was just something about it that was off-putting. Um, but when I've read it, it's based loosely on Thomas the Rhymer and Tam Lin, which are two sort of ballads. So it follows this kind of pattern, but it is so dark coming from a totally ordinary place that could be just any, oh, I don't know, you know, um, Coronation Street setting or anything. So it's a totally recognisable. I was trying to think of a 1986 kind of soap, but, um, you know, where you would recognise everything that's going on, but then it goes much darker. And I, I just love things like that. And you can see clearly. Now, what would be completely different about it? I think it would it be published these days because it's also describes that the back talks about her forming this friendship with this guy called Tom Lynn. What it doesn't say is that Tom Lynn is an adult cellist and she's a 10 year old child at the beginning. And of course, everyone would go, oh, it's not going to happen. Well, it, you know, it doesn't, but it is a love story. And there are reasons for it all which become apparent in that they're almost ageless um, for various reasons, without spoilers. Um, but what fascinated me as I went back to Diana Wynne-Jones, because I used to teach her years ago, 
um, is how close to J.K. Rowling she is. And I can see that or vice versa. Now, I know it's been good for her estate because Diana's now dead, sadly. It is slightly troubling. And somebody told me also about Eve Ibbotson, who wrote something like it's called The 13th Platform or something. Yeah. Yeah. But I did say there's no copyright on ideas. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I think about the thing about I think the thing about great art or art or even not even great art is that it's all about reinventing ideas that are out there already. And so, um, and I think it was Elvis Costello recently. I was talking about somebody who'd, who'd who'd taken one of his his songs or part of one of his songs or part of the tune and reinvented it. And someone said, oh, you should be, you, you should be suing them for some of the royalties. He said, no, that's what art does. It, it takes bits from other people and other bits from other ideas from elsewhere, puts them together, mucks around with them and creates something new and not necessarily better, but different. So there, and there is that's the reason why there's no copyright on great ideas or any ideas is that, is that you need to be constantly flowing. I think these ideas and, and ultimately, you know, that's how you get getting something new. Yeah, so. and I, I think the mashup is the idea, yeah. almost. You know, yeah. that is the unique yeah. take on it. And, and sometimes you do it unconsciously, and sometimes you do it consciously. Sometimes you just, you know, mm. you hear something or you or you have an idea because it's something you've read maybe years ago, or you yeah. just literally just picked up in a magazine or something, and and it's been percolating inside you for a long time, and then you come out and write something, uh, which you can't be completely unaware that you've taken it from from something you read five years ago, but you have done. Um, and that doesn't, it shouldn't matter, as long as it's, it's ultimately it's your creation. You haven't just copied it. Plagiarism is where you literally just lift a whole chunk of text, isn't it, and plonk yeah. it in. I think it's copying stuff, really. Copying. But I, I, I think that, that but, but developing things and taking ideas and moving mm. on is, 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 is fine. But also the important thing for listeners, and if you do read the book, and I do urge you to, it's, it's fantastic. It's, it's almost lovely to look through it. And now that we have got the Harry Potter, which didn't exist when this was written, it's more aligned to Susan Cooper in that sort of era. Um, but if you look through it, I think it's fascinating to see certain parallels yeah. And no more than that. I mean, really, it, it isn't, not in this case, any, it isn't close at all. So I'm going to actually, as I forewarned everybody, do my reading from Nora Ephron. I realise Talking Books this month is something of a Frankenstein programme because um, I recorded what I said I was going to do, the Nora Ephron I Feel Bad About My Neck, and the recording didn't go so well. So I'm now on a lovely summer's day in my writing shed and actually I wasn't really very happy just doing the one-liners I'll give you a taster because they are brilliant so it would be something like anything you think is wrong with your body at the age of 35 you will be nostalgic for by the age of 45 or when your children are teenagers it's important to have a dog so that someone in the house is happy to see you which is fine but it's almost like the the bore in the pub that's telling all these jokes so instead i'm i'm going to read you the start of the one that i said that i really liked which is about handbags or in this case because it's american i hate my purse i hate my purse i absolutely hate it If you're one of those women who think there's something great about purses, don't even bother reading this because there will be nothing here for you. This is for women who hate their purses, who are bad at purses, who understand that their purses are reflections of negligent housekeeping, hopeless disorganisation, a chronic inability to throw anything away, 
and an ongoing failure to handle the obligations of a demanding and difficult accessory. The obligation, for example, that it should in some way match what you're wearing. This is for women whose purses are a morass of loose tic-tacs, solitary advils, lipsticks without tops, chapsticks of unknown vintage, little bits of tobacco, even though there has been no smoking going on for at least ten years, tampons that have come loose from their wrappings, English coins from a trip to London last October, boarding passes from long-forgotten airplane trips, hotel keys from God knows what hotel, leaky ballpoint pens, Kleenexes that either have or have not been used, but there's no way to be sure one way or another, scratched eyeglasses, an old tea bag, several crumpled personal cheques that have come loose from the chequebook and are covered with smudge marks, and an unprotected toothbrush that looks as if it has been used to polish silver. This is for women who in mid-July realise they still haven't bought a summer purse or who in mid-winter are still carrying around a straw bag. This is for women who find it appalling that a purse might cost five or six hundred dollars, never mind that top-of-the-line thing called a Birkin bag that costs ten thousand dollars, not that it's relevant because you can't even get on the waiting list for one, on the waiting list for a purse for a $10,000 purse that will end up full of old Tic Tacs. This is for those of you who understand in short that your purse is in some absolutely horrible way you. Or as Louis XIV might have put it, but didn't because he was much too smart to have a purse. Le sac, c'est moi. So there you are. So I've got a bit of a French theme going on as well, which you'll pick up later. And I won't translate because you'll all know it. So that's it. No reaction from Tim because Tim sadly is not here. I do have the dogs either side of me and it is the most glorious day. Petersfield's Shine Radio. You know, I asked you about, was it AJ? Um, the AJ Pierce, yes. AJ Pierce. Um, now, the reason that so many people do, J.K. Rowling, George Eliot, is because men are still so resistant to read books by women. And I thought that was historic. But on the Nielsen book scan just the other day, I'm reading this from the Guardian review section. For the top 10 best-selling female authors, who include Jane Austen and Margaret Atwood, as well as Danielle Steele and Jojo Moyes, only 19% of their readers are men and 81% women. But for the top 10 best-selling male authors, who include Charles Dickens and J.R.R. Tolkien, as well as Lee Child and Stephen King, the split is much more even, with 55% men and 45% women. In, in other words, Women are prepared to read books by men, but many fewer men are prepared to read books by women. And the female author in the top 10 who had the biggest male readership, the thriller writer L.J. Ross, always uses her initials. So, first of all, is that replicated here? So you, you Tim, not as reader, but as, because I know you read across the board, but as a retailer, as a bookshop owner? Well, the first thing to, to note, really, is that most book buyers are women and not men at all. Um, but I think it's certainly true that a lot of men tend to, to read a lot of non-fiction uh, on the one hand, but also the fiction they read is probably written by men. 
So I don't count myself amongst that group because I read uh, probably more women writers than male writers, uh, mainly because I read fiction, mainly. So, yeah. um, but it's true. I mean, that, the book I was I mentioned earlier, another, another book, um, Twitch by M. G. Leonard. Uh, she's a woman, uh, but she writes young adult books. Uh, perhaps she wants to not restrict her market by people just thinking she's she's female. I don't know why. I know a lot of advice to children's authors is that have a male hero because girls will read about male heroes, but boys resist reading about girl heroes. I don't know if that's any longer true. That was about 10 years ago. I think it's less true now than I hope was. so. Yeah. But I am going to say the other thing, because you've made me think about this. Turning to non-fiction, which is read by slightly more men than women, I would have thought hugely more men than women. The pattern is similar, though not quite so striking. Women are 65% more likely to read a non-fiction book by the opposite sex than men are. So men seem to look for authority in male authorship across the board and does that bother you as a bookshop owner would you strive to get men to read books by women is this what our show our little show talking books is that what we should try and do well i think if you don't read books by women you're missing out on most a lot of brilliant fiction i think the the non-fiction aspect is different because different people write non-fiction than, than, than novelists um so a lot of it has leaked out of academia. So if you're a historian, and academia, of course, is, a, is still a typically male profession, although that is changing. So uh, I suppose that's, that's where we are. A lot of, again, a lot of science is, is written by men. Um, but that doesn't mean it's, it's, <laughs> they're the best science books or the best history books. So there you are. There you go. And if you love horror, I've just got to say before we go that in September, our guest is Jennifer Selway. And that is a non-fiction book. See what I did there? Um, and it's all about horror, which I love. OK, well, that's it for this month. If you'd like to catch up with any of our Talking Books podcasts, you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you've got any comments or questions, do email us at team at shineradio.uk. And next month... We're going to be interviewing Nigel Farndale, whose new book, The Dictator's Muse, has just been published. Uh, it's a novel about Leni Riefenstahl and the 1936 Berlin Olympics, but more on that next time. And that's the one with the cover that I thought was non-fiction. That's right, Susie. Excellent. So I'm on the case. <laughs> that's it. Bye for now. You've been listening to Talking Books with Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly, produced by John Wellsman. With Petersfield's Shine Radio. Rise and shine. Whatever local information comes in, you'll be the very first to know. You'll feel those ribs expand. And okay, then... I'm doing it, I'm doing Are it. Are you doing it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, welcome back to Rise and Shine. You're with Alan Cox this morning. What could be better? Good morning, it's good to be with you. I'm Harrison RB. It's the brighter way to start your day in the Petersphere. As long as you're breathing, <laughs> you're doing okay. <laughs> I'm so, with you, Vicky. <laughs> Rise and Shine, weekday mornings from 6, with Petersfield's Shine Radio. I think that's lovely.